Well, welcome everybody. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming today. Uh, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Setting Infrastructure Priorities, Considerations for the 115th Congress. Uh, before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream and like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet questions to us at hashtag Cato Events. Uh, further, last month, the Cato Institute released the new Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, we have some copies on the table as you came in. And further, fully searchable PDFs are available at Cato.org. Um, there are several transportation chapters in the book covering many of the topics we'll discuss here today, uh, including Amtrak, air traffic control, and surface transportation policy. Um, finally, we had convened a fascinating panel yesterday at Cato covering more aspects of transportation policy with Cato's Chris Edwards, uh, Baruch Feigenbaum, Mark Scribner, and Ron Utt, and that can now also be viewed at Cato.org. I know your appetite for transportation policy is vast and deep, so uh, we aim to please. Uh, but we have a lot more material to cover today, so let's get right to it. Uh, first up will be uh, Mr. Alan Pekarski, who is a writer, analyst, and consultant in the fields of transportation research, policy, and investment. At the state level, he has advised a dozen state gubernatorial and legislative commissions regarding their economic, social, demographic, and infrastructure circumstances. At the national level, he has frequently testified in both chambers of Congress on many issues regarding economic and demographic factors that define travel demand, infrastructure investment requirements, and public policy. Uh, internationally, he has served the USAID, the World Bank, the United Nations, the infamous OECD, and <laughs> the European Union. The food is very good. The food is good. And when, French, when the word French becomes a uh, pejorative, yes. and you know you're on to something. But, uh, the European Union, the World Tourism Organization, and the European Tourism Commission. His work in transportation, public policy, and travel behavior has been reviewed, discussed, and quoted in all the major na national news magazines and newspapers, and he is a frequent guest on television and radio. Uh, Shirley Waibara is a former senior transportation policy analyst at the Reason Foundation. Uh, her career highlights are many, and they include serving as the Secretary of Transportation for the Commonwealth of Virginia from 98 to 2002, where she oversaw a budget of $3.2 billion and a staff of 13,000 people, which is more than I think any of us have done. Um, between 1994 and 98, uh, Waibara was Virginia's Deputy Secretary of Transportation. Uh, prior to that, Ms. Waibara served as a Senior Policy Advisor and Special Assistant for Policy from 83 to 87 to U.S. Secretary of Transportation Elizabeth Dole. Uh, and in 2001, she received the American Road and Transportation Builders Association's uh, Public-Private Ventures Entrepreneur of the Year Award for her leadership in designing innovative infrastructure financing. And unless I'm very much mistaken, Ms. Ibarra has currently been organizing the Trump administration's appointments to the U.S. Department of Transportation. I think that is now largely wrapped up. Uh, she holds a master's degree in economics from the University of Nebraska. Uh, Michael Sargent leads the Heritage Foundation's effort to formulate and implement free market transportation and infrastructure policies as a research associate in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. His research analyzes the federal role in funding and overseeing the nation's transportation infrastructure, as well as issues concerning the federal budget and the national debt. Sargent examines surface transportation, aviation, waterways, and other policy issues in institutional policy papers, and, a regular, and he is a regular contributor to Heritage's news platform, The Daily Signal. Uh, his commentary has also been featured in the nation's leading periodicals, and he has appeared on CNN, One American News, and dozens of radio stations nationwide. Sargent is a graduate of Davidson College in North Carolina, where he earned a BA in history with a minor in economics. 
And last but not least is Cato's own Randall O'Toole. O'Toole is a senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues at the Institute. And his analysis of urban land use and transportation issues brought together in his first book, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, has influenced decisions in cities across the country. Uh, in his second book, The Best Laid Plans, O'Toole calls for repealing federal, state, and local planning laws and proposes reforms that can help solve social and environmental problems without heavy-handed government regulation. And O'Toole's latest book is called American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. So I will recommend all of those to you. Um, he is the author of numerous Cato papers and has also written for our own regulation magazine, which turns 40 this year, as well as many op-eds and articles for numerous national journals and newspapers. O'Toole travels extensively and has spoken about free market environmental issues in dozens of cities across the country. Uh, an Oregon native and resident, O'Toole was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. So uh, each will speak for about 10 minutes or so and we'll endeavor to leave time at the end for questions. Uh, I will have a short announcement at the conclusion. And for now, with applause, please welcome Mr. Alan Pekarski. Yeah, you did. After consultation. Hi, I understand I'm obligated to say that I too was on the transition team. And anything I say has nothing to do with the work I did on the transition team. Uh, it seems to have moved well back. Well, we start there. There you go. Um, so this is this is my my opinions are my own, isn't that what they say? And uh, whatever. Um, so let's uh, get into it. What we really need to discuss for uh, I'm going to try to cover in a few minutes here is setting the priorities, answering some of the finance questions, and addressing what I consider important. The the immense backlog that we are we're facing in this country. Um, the straightforward argument I have in terms of infrastructure priorities is, is simply focus, focus, focus. Um, we need to focus on the federal role more directly. We need to recognize it as national in scope and federal in responsibility. Uh, if those are met, then we have a basis for talking about what, what the federal role ought to be. The, the Europeans, I don't usually quote Europeans in these things, but they have an argument called subsidiarity, which basically says do it at the lowest level of government that can encompass it, and I think that's one of the things we've totally lost, lost track of. The focus, therefore, in my mind, needs to be on interstate commerce uh, and strategic log logistical requirements. I mean strategic, not just in the military sense, I mean it in that sense, but I also mean it in terms of uh, international competitiveness, uh, domestic ec economic development, the whole strategic set of activities that we need to focus on. So my, sum my, my simple summary here is the focus must be on that which is national in scope and uh, federal in responsibility. On the finance side, I'm sure I'm going to be saying a few things that my colleagues on the panel won't be thrilled with, but uh, I think they do need saying as we get into the discussions. Uh, I understand the president is meeting right now having a discussion on this. Uh, I think it all starts with credibility. Uh, governments today are not trusted, whether it's local government, state government, the feds. Uh, I think that comes mostly from the fact that all governments tend to be strapped for money these days and the the public, I think, is correctly suspicious of 
of mechanisms by which we uh, we see governments raising money, whether it's red light cameras in Chicago where all of a sudden the yellow gets to be narrower because it generates more revenue, uh, the ARA program, which was justified based on shovel-ready uh, programs in transportation, and I think we ended up with, what, 3% of the total funding. All of these things are justified on uh, congestion grounds, and then they proceed to do what they have, whatever they want with the money. Um, and I think treating the public not as a demand to be served, but rather as patients to be prescribed for, I think is a, is a large part of the, the drama. Uh, Randall has addressed that in many cases. I'm nervous about, my, so my bumper sticker here is kind of finance ain't money. Everybody's talking about finance of the system, and a lot of people have realized that you can go very broke financing. Um, I am concerned also with the validity of tolls and user charges at this stage, and it's, this goes back to the government not being trusted that I made a point of. There was a point when toll roads, and think of the New Jersey Turnpike as an example, where you had this kind of virtuous triangle between the users, the owners of the system, and the bondholders who kept each other honest. When you start spinning off that money for other nice things to do, um, then you break that virtuous circle the funding changes, and it's no longer a toll, it's basically a, a, a tax. Um, <clears throat> so I'm nervous about that, and I've heard people talk about how we can protect that, and I agree with that it's a great idea, but I'm, I've not seen anybody able to defend these programs. Uh, tolling the interstate is, uh, I think, a popular one. It makes me very nervous. I'm working on a project now looking at the future of the interstate, and the first question I, well, let me just give you five reasons why I don't think it's a, a heck of a good idea. The first one will be the one I've already mentioned. Money will get drained for other uses. Somebody's going to need to do something really nice, a convention center or whatever. Somebody's going to make a deal, and, and you're going to see increases in, in tolls on the interstate uh, to help pay for it. Uh, the second is a question that I keep asking and nobody's answered. What happens to the people who have been priced off the system? The interstate was designed to expand economic activity and social activity throughout the nation. If you start pricing it and pushing people off onto some other facility, it's not exactly clear what it is you're accomplishing with the concept of, of the goal of the interstate. Um, perhaps uh, if you get to the stage where, in fact, you can fund the interstate program, there's no question you can do it. But then. If that's the main federal role, and now you're taking care of it privately, what's left for the federal role? And my sense is you will basically have the camels in charge of the tent. And so we'll be funding the interstate system with a, with a, uh, a toll system, and we'll be using the federal gasoline tax for other wonderful things, and I'm not sure I know what those are. And I guess my, my closing point here is that the tolling the interstate, it's not a marketplace. The notion is that somehow the market reacts to, to demand. This market won't react to demand. The, the creation of the interstate and the ability to expand it isn't going to happen. Uh, is not going to happen uh, in, in the political climate in which we operate. Um, and I guess my final point there is that we need a menu for this as, as much. The menu basically says, if we, if we tax you this much, you'll get this much. And this is what some states have done, and it has worked. That's how we, we built the interstate. Um, we need to focus on the federal responsibility of, of, of addressing a, the backlog. 
Uh, the 60-year-old interstate program, I think, is key to that. Uh, Congress's op operating manual, the Condition and Performance Report, was just released, and it's, uh, it, I say, it didn't say, address the massive national backlog that's expressed in, in those, that report. Um, and I think it's going to take us a while before we can do the things we need to do, basically bring the interstate up to present standards and expand it to meet future uh, responsibility. The backlog is basically a system for addressing what needs to be done now as we move in, into the future. The interstate system uh, is identified as a backlog of $157 billion right now as part of the national backlog of about $836 billion. Um, the, the interstate covers about 25% of all travel, so it's being 18% of the national backlog, I think, is a pretty good, pretty good deal. I won't go into this table, but I uh, hope you'll get a chance to look at it. It basically identifies that interstate backlog as being somewhere be, uh, related to highway rehabilitation, bridge rehabilitation, and system expansion. These are 2012 data, which were just released because this thing has been festering, marinating in the White House for a couple of years. Uh, and, and we need much newer data to understand where this backlog is and where it's going. So I think I can just close by repeating, focus on that which is national in scope and federal in responsibility. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It's just okay. I uh, labeled mine project selection for the trillion dollar plan. And um, I actually have a couple things in this one. This one. Yeah. Um, first thing I would say is, um, actually the first thing I'm gonna say is, I am not in charge, do not send your resumes. I am not in charge of uh, funneling people to DOT. I headed up the original uh, DOT agency action team and then the, what they called the landing team. And by the way, we started last August. Alan was on the team. Uh, we started last August. Then there was a landing team, that was after the uh, election. And uh, then our job, uh, frankly, was finished as of inaugural, the day of inauguration. And there are now people, and this is a very military term called the beachhead team, and those people are in there with Elaine Chow, and they were selected. So don't send me a resume <laughs> uh, in any event. Um, my point on this is uh, actually in part of the perspective is from having been a, a secretary for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, my point here is uh, we should measure uh, outputs, not inputs. Um, and that we've seen that in a lot of other uh, areas, not transportation. We're not as good at it in transportation. Uh, and I love my engineers. The bridges come together in the middle. But I think it's because the engineers were uh, measuring what they got done. Um, but I wanted it, many states have adopted some new programs, and I want to uh, focus on Virginia. Now, this happened after I was there, but I think it's been uh, a, a very good idea. Um, and I, I wanted to start this out with if I see another list, lists, lists, and more lists, uh, let me tell you, I, they, they make no never mind. And it's it's a it's a dream list. It's a dream. It's a wish list, um, and 
the other thing is, it's all focused on highways and bridges. I had to tell you folks, at least when I was working uh, on the transition, I mean, we were thinking broader scope. Yes, we were focused on DOT, but you know, there's pipelines, there's a lot of other infrastructures, infrastructure other than roads and bridges. And I just caution people to keep that in mind. But I'm gonna go back and focus on roads for a moment <laughs> and bridges. Um, I really think that, and again, this is from the uh, uh, secretary's perspective and having been a member of AASHTO and since been involved, um, the, I really think the states can come up with those needed uh, projects. And uh, Virginia, in the legislature in 2012, passed two significant pieces of legislation, uh, and the, it, they now call it the project selection model. The first one, uh, they were, what they were trying to do was sort of hone down, and we used to have at the Commonwealth Transportation Board, and we'd go out and around the, 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 the Commonwealth, and we'd get all these, we get these big lists from every locality, and everybody had their pet project and their turning lane and their intersection and their whatever. It really took a lot of time, and it really wasn't very valuable. Um, so they passed two pieces of legislation, and one of them was primarily focused on Northern Virginia, and um, the other one then was more statewide. The Northern Virginia one had a great deal of focus on congestion mitigation. And if any of you drive up here in, in the Northern Virginia, Washington area, you might say, oh, yeah, I think they better figure that one out pretty soon. Um, but anyway, it had these lists, the uh, congestion and uh, I have a table here coming up that shows what the kinds of things they were looking at uh, as to what congestion mitigation met, meant and how uh, they were going to try and analyze it. And um, they, the Northern Virginia Transportation uh, Association put together a whole a huge list. Uh, and it was, I don't know, uh, 37 projects of which only 20, uh, only four projects scored above the 20, which it had to be to trigger it to be one of the projects being considered. In other words, there were still a lot of wish lists, uh, a lot of wishing in those lists. Um, and they weren't focused on, what my point is, they weren't focused on solving the congestion problem. They were focused on what somebody would like to do. And so anyway, those projects didn't score as high as everybody thought they would. I found that fascinating. The uh, second piece of legislation uh, was applied to the entire state, and congestion was only one of the six factors. And, but, and, but they had some other factors in there, and that was safety and con, you know, congestion and accessibility and, um, economic development, the whole set of issues that, that I've identified here was in legislation. And these also had weighted scales uh, and to things to look at. And the weights uh, were by region because in Southwest Virginia, it was more important for economic development than it was, say, in Hampton Roads. Um, uh, this is, it's all probably a bit subjective, but at least they're trying to measure something. Um, and there was access to jobs, 
Um, these three things, these were all included in it, the sub-factors and the weights put given to them, and uh, air quality and energy and uh, uh, the, the things that were required, say, in Hampton Roads were more important in Hampton Roads or nor Northern Virginia than they were, again, in uh, sort of in and around uh, or in southwest Virginia or in uh, the, the further west, say, out by... Uh, Roanoke and so on. So all of this was put together and they came up with a reasonable list of projects that went into those that they would look look for in the what they called a six-year plan. And any, they could submit projects to be included. It could, would include pr uh, transit in some areas. MPOs, local governments could submit projects and they would go through this scoring. And then Virginia Department of Transportation, the highway department, would submit it then to the governing board, the Commonwealth Transportation uh, Board, to select the projects and approve that project for funding. I, it, uh, that part of it is sort of the way it always went. What they hadn't done, at least when I was secretary, was jump through all the hurdles to get through the projects. Instead, we just listened to everybody's wish list. Um, so I think this is a better program and uh, a better way to go about it. MPOs and local governments are being able to submit their projects. And uh, all in all, you can see what the uh, results uh, were. And anyway, the, the plan sort of focuses, and at least we're dealing with something that's what I'd say cost efficient, where we're actually getting something. Uh, and on mobility and congestion relief, Maryland, I understand, has enacted something. It will be probably a lot more uh, favoring transit. That's just what Maryland chooses to do and what they've put into their legislation. Uh, and I haven't uh, really spent a lot of time lately. Uh, primarily, I was a little busy up until January 21st um, and looking at what the other states have done, and many legislatures are meeting right now. So in any event, I'd uh, later be happy to answer any questions on this any once that I can. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. Um, just want to say thank you to Randall and Peter and the rest of Cato for having me, and uh, for you all for taking the time out of your schedules. I know you're incredibly busy, so uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, I think um, Randall and Shirley and Alan have surface transportation fairly well covered. Uh, so I'm, today I'm going to be focusing on uh, airports um, and ways we can drive investment there without the need for extra government spending at the federal level. So as Alan um, uh, very deftly covered. When we think about the federal role in transportation, it really should be limited to things that are truly national in scope, like the interstates. And w when you do divert a lot of that money to things that are local in nature, um, like you know, streetcars, sidewalks, bike paths, we actually can see a lot of counterproductive um, outcomes at the local level. And so if you do want to drive um, investment to uh, infrastructure assets, there's a better way to do that. And that's primarily by getting the federal government out of the way when it comes to um, 
funding and also uh, regulatory barriers, and then allowing the, the market or the states and local uh, governments to fill that role. And I think airports are probably the best example that we have right now of something that unquestionably could be handled much better um, by the market. So I'm gonna cover that today. Um, briefly, I'll give you a, uh, an overview of the current airport funding system, um, then point out some of the major issues and uh, shortcomings that we've seen um, with that system, and then kind of uh, give you a roadmap for a better way forward. Um, so first, just kind of a quick quick comparison. Uh, this is uh, Heathrow London uh, Airport serving London. I flew through there in August. Um, it's an unbelievable airport, beautiful, gleaming, and it's privately owned. It is owned by um, Heathrow Airport Holdings, and they privately um, serve, serve the airport, maintain it, and expand it. And I think this stands in a stark contrast to one of the airports serving our largest city, New York. This is LaGuardia Airport. Um, this is not a long time ago. This was on Sunday. Um, so we can see the stark contrast between two assets that really, um, LaGuardia is a smaller airport, but it should be managed to the same standards that we see in London. And the real tragedy of this is LaGuardia does make a profit. It makes more money um, than, than it uh, gets sunk into it. And part of that is because it's managed by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is a uh, government monopoly, essentially, on the New York airport's area. And so that kind of serves as a backdrop to the current ownership and funding of airports that we see in the United States. And LaGuardia is an egregious example. Um, I think our airports do um, function very well at actually moving people. Uh, we move 900 million air, uh, air travelers every single year. That's the most in the world by a long shot. So they're pretty good at that. Uh, where we seriously are deficient is in terms of overall quality and experience. The United States has zero of the top 25 airports in the world. And to me, I think that for the world's greatest country and wealthiest, um, with some of the best transportation assets, I find that um, truly egregious. And I think one of the main reasons that is, is that we seriously lag behind the rest of the developed world when it comes to private ownership and management of our airports. Um, of all our major airports, we only have one that is privately owned, and that's out in Puerto Rico. Uh, if you contrast that to Europe, um, nearly 75% of their air traffic passengers move through airports that are at least partially or wholly privately owned. So that's a huge stark contrast. And I think to a great degree, um, federal involvement in the airport business uh, contributes that to that um, in, in, in a large number of ways. First, um, as I'll talk about, we have this kind of um, very inefficient top-down funding scheme uh, we have restrictions on how airports can raise and spend their own revenues. Uh, we have a very heavy-handed regulatory um, regime. And then also we have a financing system that heavily favors publicly owned airports over um, their private counterparts. Uh, so first, just on um, our federal airport funding system, um, it's primarily done through the Airport Improvement Program. And we spend about um, just over $3.35 billion every single year. And this is all funded by uh, aviation taxes, primarily by the taxes on uh, commercial passengers, but then also other aviation-related levies. Um, and so under the current system, though, 95% about is roughly um, falls on commercial passengers. And the AIP grants are very limited in their use. They can only be used for airside improvements. 
things like um, runways and taxiways that cannot be used for other airports improvements. So they're very limited in their scope. But I think the biggest issue that we see with this program is it's a huge distribution from uh, redistribution of resources away from the most significant airports that most people use to those that very few people use and have a limited uh, impact on our economy. Uh, the top 60 airports in the U.S. handle 88% of um, U.S. air traffic, but they receive only 27% of AIP grants. And because those passengers um, are paid, the ones who are paying most into the system, um, they are the ones that are getting shortchanged by this. We see uh, non-commercial airports, which uh, contribute only about 1% of revenues, receive a whole 30% of the grants. So this lopsided system falls on the passengers because your ticket taxes are going to airports that you're likely never going to use. And for this reason, um, just funneling more money into the current AIP system is really not going to um, give us the substantial improvements in airports that we would like to see. On top of that um, lopsided funding system, you have a really um, restrictive regulatory regime from the federal government when it comes to what airports can and cannot do. The most egregious of these is um, a 1973 law called the Anti-Head Tax Act. And that restricts airports on charging their primary customers, the people who fly on the planes, any, any sort of fee or price for using their system. And this is unique um, among uh, the world's airports. And I mean, what kind of business model is it that you literally cannot charge the primary people who are using your service? And this has had a lot of um, serious implications for airports. Um, it limits air carrier competition at our airports because instead of char charging the flyers, you instead have to go through the um, airlines. And while I like the airlines, they have their own set of incentives in place to maximize their market share at certain airports. Um, and there is an exception to this, which I'll touch on in a bit. It's the um, highly regulated passenger facility charge. And that's currently price capped by Congress and has a whole bunch of other regulations on it. You're, essentially, the airports have to go and justify um, their use of the PFC to the FAA. So it's very, very restricted. Um, on top of that, any airport that has ever received um, AIP grants, which is almost every single one, has to comply with a huge host of regulations um, administered by the FAA. And these go well beyond safety to actually going and dictating um, how the airports can run as a business. Um, if an airport wants to change its layout, they have to go to the FAA to get approval. Um, they're prohibited from what it, a widely um, broad uh, practice called economic discrimination, which basically inhibits their ability to innovate with business models. Um, they have to give a certain space to favored retailers. Um, there's restrictions on how the airport can market itself. It cannot say, hey, come to uh, Orlando, fly through Orlando Airport, and come see uh, Disneyland and Universal Studios. All they can say is, come fly through Orlando Airport and see Orlando Airport, which almost no one wants to do. It makes very little sense. Um, and it's gotten down to the point where this was a proposal last year. I'm not sure if it made it into law, but it would require airports to have designated lactation areas for breastfeeding mothers um, with a flat surface and at least two outlets. So while these things are, that's not an inherently bad thing, this level of micromanagement really prohibits airports from functioning as the real businesses they should be run as. And in addition, uh, these uh, federal regulations restrict uh, privatization. Like I mentioned, we only have one private airport. And um, one of the biggest uh, issues we see with that is 
Um, one of the grant assurances basically says that airports cannot um, uh, move any revenues to non-airport uses, which makes sense. The problem, though, is that if you want to privatize an airport, after a municipality sells the airport to a private company, the payment they would then receive from the private company can only be used for airport uses. So in effect, they would have to give that money back to the private company who just bought it from them. And of course, that makes very little sense and provides, um, if, if it's interpreted uh, strictly, a big barrier to privatizing our airports. And then overall, some of the business restrictions I talked to, in addition to being unable to charge their own fees, I'm not sure why any sane private company would want to get into the airport business right now, especially if they wanted to make their money um, back. So the whole system just tends to um, restrict uh, airport ownership to local governments, which um, to varying degrees just tend to run the airports like government agencies. And so instead of kind of plowing some more money into this current inefficient system, what we really should be doing is unshackling our airports, allow them to run like businesses, not like the local um, agencies that receive just complete um, uh, federal top-down control through regulations. So ideally, um, what I think we should be doing is looking to end federal involvement in the U.S. airports with an exception for safety um, and instead just focus um, investment and management at the local level, um, end the airport improvement program, roll back taxes, and instead localize those fees that um, passengers pay at the airport rather than funneling it through the federal government. Um, I think we'd see a lot a greater deal of privatization that way, um, but again, that might not be politically realistic. So um, what might be more feasible is instead take part of that um, scheme and localize the airport funding um, then you can do this in a couple different ways. Uh, you could exempt the large airports, the hub airports, from the Anti-Head Tax Act, uh, or you could lift um, the passenger facility charge cap. Like I said, it's at um, uh, 450 uh, per passenger right now, and that hasn't changed uh, since 2000. So it's a lot, lost a lot of its purchasing power. But as you can see on the chart there, we've really seen airports more and more um, come to rely on the PFC as a source of revenue. And um, we're seeing some proposals that would do that. Um, Rep Stefazio and Massey just came out with a um, promising proposal. And so that's, that's just one way we could uh, focus more um, investment at our airports without the need for greater spending. And I think we would see, in, in this way, we'd see super, much, much greater um, management of the airports, long-term investment, and um, greater privatization. And if you look at the potential of U.S. airports as vital assets and businesses, um, we could see a huge impact from privatizing those assets. And um, I'd estimate that privatizing the largest 71 airports, which handle about 1.5 million passengers per year each, we'd see $180 billion in direct private investment. And I think that's a lowball number. So I think that goes a, a good way towards the $1 trillion that um, a lot of people are hoping for. And uh, so with that, I conclude uh, my presentation. Um, I think you have the paper um, that I wrote that lays out um, a lot of these points in greater detail, and I'm happy to um, discuss further or hand you my slides afterwards. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michael. I didn't... I didn't know any of that. That was very amazing. 
Um, I've been focusing on surface transportation for the last 22 years, and about eight years ago, I started talking about self-driving cars. Today, I want to talk about mass transit, but I ha we have to talk about them in the context of self-driving cars. When I first brought up the subject of self-driving cars, my fellow Catoites thought I was crazy. They thought I was talking about science fiction. And then Google was nice enough to bring one of their cars over to Cato and, and demonstrate it for us, driving around, driving itself around with us as passengers, Washington, D.C., so that kind of tempered their views. Last year, uh, there was even a more significant event. Uh, Mark Fields, the president of Ford, uh-oh, we don't have sound here. That's all right. The president of Ford gave a speech in which he said, uh, Ford believes that self-driving cars will have as much of an impact on society as Henry Ford's moving assembly line did 100 years ago. Uh, and if you don't know, that moving assembly line is what made cars affordable to the masses. And so he was announcing last August that Ford was going to mass produce fully self-driving cars, meaning no automobile, no steering wheel, no gas pedal, no brake pedal, fully self-driving cars to operate in a shared service mode in the cities by 2021. So millions of these cars will be flooding the streets. So when you pull up Uber or Lyft or Ford as an app on your cell phone, in four years, you will get a car that doesn't have a driver anymore. And so <clears throat> these... Uh, Totally driverless cars, which Google is already experimenting with publicly uh, and has done experiments with in Austin and in California and elsewhere, uh, are going to revolutionize everything. When we look at, when we compare these cars with mass transit and the inconveniences of using mass transit, uh, we just have to uh, wonder if mass transit is going to survive. Now, people often wonder, what kind of infrastructure are self-driving cars going to need? What kind of new infrastructure that they don't have now? And the answer is zero. There are some people who think we need to install a whole bunch of electronic infrastructure for self-driving cars to use. They call them smart highways. But the self-driving cars being produced and, and developed by Ford and Mercedes and Volkswagen and other companies have all the smarts in the car. They're not going to need any smart highways. And so the whole idea of smart highways is already obsolete. The Obama administration wanted to put a bunch of money into smart highways, and hopefully not much was spent on it. Uh, now, here's what I think is a rough timeline. I might be a little bit optimistic, but uh, according to this timeline, in four or five years, you'll be able to buy cars that uh, will drive themselves most of the time, and a few years after that will drive themselves all the time. And by about 2040, uh, I think states will be considering closing highways to automobiles, or to, to human-driven automobiles, because it's just too dangerous for humans uh, to have control of a three or 4,000-pound vehicle uh, on the highway. So for infrastructure, the, what states need to do is maintain the infrastructure they've got. They don't need to spend a lot more uh, on new infrastructure. They need to fill the potholes. Might be helpful to coordinate so that signage in the eastern United States is roughly the same as in the western United States, and uh, detour signs are the same. Uh, I'm not sure a self-driving car would be able to read this sign since uh, uh, they wanted to go left and the sign pointed right, so they just put it upside down. Transit, though, is going to be a lot more impacted. Um, 
the, perp, the Maryland wants to build the Purple Line, which is going to cost $2.5 billion. It's going to significantly increase congestion in suburban Washington, D.C., in Maryland. Uh, and uh, because of self-driving cars, I think they're not going to have any riders. Uh, just compare the cost. Uh, last year, Americans spent just over a trillion dollars buying, operating, and insuring automobiles, and they drove 2.7 trillion miles. That's about 40 cents a vehicle mile. The average car has one and two-thirds people in it, so that's 25 cents a passenger mile for your own car door-to-door -door transportation. Uh, transit fares tend to average about 25 cents a passenger mile. So on a price basis, they're roughly competitive with automobiles, but they're nowhere near as, uh, as convenient. Transit is just not as convenient. And so imagine, even if self-driving cars, because they're operating in a profit mode, uh, if you're sharing a car, uh, you order a car, come to you, they might charge you 40 cents a, a vehicle mile. They might charge you 50 cents a vehicle mile. But you think, are you going to go out and wait for a train or a bus in 90-degree weather and 90% humidity or in the middle of a snowstorm, in the middle of a rainstorm, or are you going to have a self-driving car come to your door, welcome you at your door, take you exactly where you want to go on the fastest, most efficient route, and drop you off at the door of your destination? Most people will be willing to pay a little more for that, and so we're going to see the Purple Line and other trains emptying out uh, and... Cities that are building these trains, and, and there's 40 cities all over the country that are building and are trying to get more money to build more trains. Uh, they're just wasting their taxpayers' money. Um, last year, subsidies to highways were $73 billion. That's more than usual. Usually it's about 40 to $50 billion, but Congress had to supplement the Highway Trust Fund, and that added a little bit. But even that adds up to only about 2.6 cents a passenger mile. We compare that with subsidies to transit, and this excludes the capital cost of transit. When you include the capital costs, CR, commuter rail, HR, heavy rail, LR, light rail, it's going to be a lot more than buses. Uh, but even uh, without counting the capital costs, just counting operations and maintenance, the subsidies are 40 cents to $1.06 a passenger mile, far more than subsidies to driving. And so uh, as Shared self-driving cars start capturing people away from transit agencies. Decision makers are going to, policy makers are going to have to say, is it worthwhile throwing subsidies at these transit systems when we could just give vouchers to low-income people to use their shared uh, vehicles? We could just uh, uh, offer shared vehicle service on a city basis rather than having big box transit, uh, light rail, and so on. Um, some highways are congested today. Uh, potentially, self-driving cars are going to eliminate that congestion because uh, self-driving cars are going to have faster reflexes than humans, and most congestion is caused by slow human reflexes. You'll be able to pack more roads onto a road, more, more cars onto a road, and that will relieve congestion to some degree. There are still maybe places where you need to build some roads. And I recommend that you only build them where they can be paid for by user fees. Uh, Alan made some telling points against tolls, but I'm from Oregon. Uh, Oregon was the first state to have a gas tax to pay, to pay for roads in 1919, and now they're the first state to start experimenting on a large scale with mileage-based user fees. I was one of the first people to volunteer. Uh, they sent me a little GPS device that plugs into the diagnostic port of my car, 
and uh, they don't invade my privacy, but they send me a bill every month, and they tell me when uh, my battery is dying and I need to recharge it. So I find it very convenient, and I think a mileage-based user fee answers most of the problems that uh, uh, Alan raised. Uh, still, people are going to be concerned about privacy, and maybe we can address that in the uh, Q&A. Now, for new highway projects, uh, when we talk about public-private partnerships, they use what's called a demand-risk public-private partnership in most cases. That means the private partner puts up the money and builds a project and collects tolls and then takes the risk that the tolls aren't going to pay for the cost of the project. Uh, I don't think that's a bad system. Uh, it it uh, definitely uh, ensures, provides some insurance that we're going to build roads where, there's a, where there's, they, they need to be needed the most because private investors aren't going to spend the money if it's not really needed. Uh, and privately built roads, or rather roads paid for out of user fees, tend to be the best maintained. When you hear about crumbling roads and bridges or crumbling infrastructure, it tends to be the infrastructure that's paid for out of tax dollars, not out of user fees. Uh, you might have heard re recently a press release saying, the United States has 57,000 bridges that are falling down. Yes, well, uh, 20 year, 25 years ago, they had 137,000. So the problem of crumbling infrastructure is going away for those roads that are paid for out of user fees. Most of the ones that are left, a disproportionate number, are roads that are paid for out of uh, uh, general funds like sales taxes or property taxes. In other words, local roads, city and county roads, rather than state roads. Now, uh, many cities are starting to build rail transit using public-private partnerships, but it's a different kind of public-private partnership. Uh, this is a Denver transit line. It was built with a public-private partnership on using what's called the availability payment model. That's where the transit agency says, we will let a private party build it, they borrow the money, they build it, and then we will pay them, regardless of whether anybody rides the train, we'll pay them $5 million a month. And they are guaranteed a profit. So the private party takes no risk, the public takes all the risk that the pro project is gonna be a total miserable failure uh, you notice there's somebody standing with a stop sign in front of the crossing gates. That's because the, the crossing gates built by the private party are not reliable. It's not like crossing gate technology is a new technology, and yet they now have to have somebody stand in front of them to make sure that people don't drive their cars across and, and, and get killed. Um, so I don't like the availability payment model. Uh, it's mainly a way to avoid debt limits, and it uh, allows cities and, and transit agencies to really build expensive wasteful projects. Uh, because the federal government contributes to these rail projects, we've seen the costs explode. The first modern light rail line in America was built in 1980 and cost less than $20 million a mile adjusted for inflation to today's dollars. Uh, last year, the average light rail line being under, constru under construction was $160 million a mile. Seattle just completed one for $626 million a mile. Uh, Los Angeles just decided to build one that's going to be $950 million a mile, an 11-mile light rail line. Uh, and none of these lines can carry any more people than that one built in 1980. And I question whether the one built in 1980 was economically efficient. Certainly the later ones are not. The other problem is when you rely on tax dollars to build it, 
you don't have, if you can't afford to build it out of user fees, you aren't going to have enough money to maintain it out of user fees either. So the Washington uh, metro system, you all know, is falling apart. Uh, the feds paid to build it. Local governments paid to operate it. Nobody set, any aside, set aside any money to maintain it. And uh, so we have accidents. We have smoke in the tunnels. We have broken rails, all kinds of problems. Uh, instead of rebuilding it, we need to think about converting to modern, efficient buses. This is a busway in Istanbul. They can move more than 250 buses an hour on this busway. That bus can hold 200 passengers. It's larger than the buses that we use in the United States. But even using buses in the United States, a busway like this can move more people per hour than the Washington metro system per mile of, of route mile. And so we need to start thinking about converting rails to buses in places where rails are wearing out. The only place where rails make sense in the United States is uh, New York City. Elsewhere, buses can serve instead for a lot less money, and they're safer than light rail. They're faster than light rail. Uh, uh, Denver just opened a new busway, uh, and it's 41 miles an hour to get from Denver to Boulder. It's the fastest uh, bus they've got, but it's also faster than any of the rail lines they've built. It was the only rail. It was the only project that was built without a significant cost overrun. It cost a fraction of what the uh, rail lines are building cost. And the lanes that the bus uses are open to cars. Uh, people who pay a toll can, can use those cars, even if there's only one person, can use those lanes, even if there's only one person in the car. Uh, and uh, if buses become obsolete because of self-driving shared cars, well, those lanes are open for the self-driving shared cars, too. So in this way, we've got a, 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 a user fee-driven system. Uh, we can focus transit on buses. For the next few years, and we can see if transit becomes totally obsolete after that. If it doesn't, then buses will still serve us. If it does, the buses are going to wear out pretty fast, and we want, aren't out a lot of money like we will be if we build the Purple Line and other lines like that. Thank you very much. So shy. Uh, thank you, Randall, and thank you, everybody. I appreciate that. I will. Can I see it? Just a quick show of hands of those people who are actually tasked with transportation for their bosses. Okay, so for everyone else, what what can we divine from uh, Secretary Chow's plan? What can we expect from the administration regarding infrastructure spending and anyone? I, I, they're, they're meeting right now at the White House. How <laughs> do we know? I, I, if I had to guess politically, I think it would be almost disastrous for them in this first term to think in terms of uh, an increased gas tax or a toll road system. I think if, if it happens at all, it'll happen after um, dealing with the health care programs, after dealing with the financial problems of restructuring the taxes. It may happen as a part of restructuring of the taxes, but it certainly will be uh, off in the distance somewhere. If you talk about the private sector programs, which are really great stuff, uh, I have no argument with them. It, it, when you're all done, you're lucky if you've touched 7 or 8% of what is need, needs to be done. And so, yes, it's a problem. I mean, it's a solution, but it, it's not where we need to be. Uh, and it goes back to the point we were all making about, about putting the money where, where the problems are. 
I, I would agree on on I would agree on timing on it that it's uh, I don't think this is the bill nor was it ever thought to be the first bill out of the box sure. because he had promised health Mr. Trump had promised health care uh, tax reform I mean you think about the order that he mentioned it and I think we'll be lucky to see we may begin to see a shape of it after tax reform but I think yes. we don't see a bill uh, actually until the fall and we may have that as a discussion draft in the fall or something like that Michael? yeah I think that sounds about right and um, just to what we were all saying you know I hope that it this trillion dollars and the president has mentioned it's not going to be all just top-down spending and so given what I was talking about we seriously need to look at reforms ways we can drive investment without the need um, for a big spending package and secretary Chow was um, the uh, Deputy Secretary of Transportation, when they initially um, created the Passenger Facility Charge, PFC. So I'm optimistic, at least what I was talking about in my presentation, that we could see some um, more investment in airports that way rather than um, a, a big appropriations bill or, or stimulus package. And, and let me also say that, you know, she was, um, Secretary Chow was a White House fellow when I worked for Elizabeth Dole. I mean, this is how many years I go back. But she was also the deputy maritime administrator. So she knows very well uh, the issues in and around the ports and uh, the uh, and issues, I say surrounding the ports, it's not only the dredging, and, and but it's the access to the ports and so on. So she has a very, very broad scope here. And I think she's not gonna let them just say, well, it's gonna have to be roads, I mean, if anybody's going to be arguing for a broader base of projects, it's going to be uh, Secretary Chow. Um, I might be engaged in wishful thinking, but everything I've seen points to uh, the administration favoring a bottom-up process that uh, includes bottom-up funding. The federal government will not itself spend a lot of money. It'll merely try to create institutions that will allow uh, a better and more effective use of money. The problem is Bottom-up is efficient but messy. Top-down has the appearance of being orderly but extremely inefficient. And so there's always going to be a temptation to shift to a top-down mode. Uh, but so far, uh, what very little we've seen uh, has been really bottom-up. One of the, the things that takes me back, I was listening to something uh, yesterday in the news, and this goes back to the Nixon administration, where it was proposed that for every penny a state raised in gas tax, the feds would take off a penny in that state and just kind of keep the total level of revenue the same but shift it back in that direction. And I'm beginning to think people are beginning to, to reconsider that uh, in this present time. Well, we've also, because I mean, we've all seen, and I, I think, Heritage, I know, years ago said, well, let's block grant everything to the, the, like the highway fund or the whatever we could block grant transit and let them sort out who needs what. Um, so that may be, I mean, it may be getting back into, let's, and I, I would say the states will probably say, fine, just give us, let us make the decisions and, and mm -hmm. pull off some of the federal strings that you have hanging over our heads uh, on, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the various pieces of the highway program, I don't know if you know, it's, I mean, it's not like you get a bunch of money as a state secretary. I had 
and my people in Virginia felt that if I got a bunch of money at the beginning of the year and whatever, well, I had to spend the money to get reimbursed. And, and then I had to spend it in these, I don't know, 40 programs. 87 categories, yeah. Yeah, in these pots of money and these things. And I hoped I had a project that would fit in one of them. If they just unshackle some of that, I think the states could be more productive. We often forget that the, the highway program is unique, I think, in many respects. Uh, OMB doesn't understand it much of the time. It, you know, the typical program is you, 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 you bring a little supplication, a little request to the government, and a really smart guy behind a desk decides who gets the money. The highway program is defined as a state program that is federally assisted, and and they're in charge. And so I, I think that recognition needs to permeate the discussion when we're talking about the highway, highway side. 